Ongel Honey on politics this week. The ongoing saga of the SNP in crisis. Tackling less survivable brain cancers. And a father's heartbreaking story of his daughter's life-limiting condition. Welcome to Series 5 of Gulhani on Politics. Previously on Desperate Humza, Police Scotland pitched its tent on Nicola Sturgeon's front lawn and arrested her husband, Peter Murrell. All in connection with an ongoing investigation into the SNP's murky finances. Officers also turned up at Mr Morell's 92-year-old mother's driveway in Dunfernline and towed away a luxury campervan. A newly minted and mortified First Minister Humza Yusuf then had to admit that the SNP's auditors resigned way back in October last year and that the party's executive kept it secret. Then the SNP's own treasurer was arrested, which begs the question, who will be next? It seems that no audit firm in Scotland wants to touch the SNP's accounts. So, Humza found a small firm near Manchester to look at his books, a firm that's being closely watched as its own record in regulatory compliance and tax matters has certainly raised eyebrows. God, you couldn't really make this up. The downfall of the SNP really is playing out like a Netflix drama. And I, for one, can't wait to find out what's going to happen in the next episode of Desperate Humza. Delegates at the Scottish Conservative Spring Conference certainly lapped up the many gags about the SNP's ongoing woes. That said, my focus was on policy and how our party will deliver on Scotland's real priorities. My key speech focused on rebuilding our NHS. Over many months, I've listened to NHS professionals, healthcare charities, universities, health economists and patient groups in order to develop a plan for our NHS that is far advanced than anything the SNP has ever dreamt of over the past decade. Policies must be fit for purpose, fit for the 21st century, which means embracing technology, prioritising investment, incentivising staff and strengthening preventative healthcare. We need to focus more on what keeps us healthy rather than using the NHS as a repair shop. Our NHS must be modern, efficient and focused on local delivery so healthcare is accessible for all of our population. And this will be a key focus during this series of Gulhani on Politics. Policy and solutions on how to achieve a modern, efficient and local NHS for Scotland. Brain cancer is one of the six common cancers with poor survival rates, along with lung cancer, liver, esophagus, pancreas and the stomach. We call these less survivable cancers as they average five-year survival rates of just 16%. Over 9,000 people will be diagnosed with one of these cancers in Scotland each year, a quarter of all cancer diagnoses. And these six cancers account for 40% of all cancer deaths, claiming over 7,000 lives in Scotland annually. So can we do more to identify brain cancer and provide better treatments? I recently spoke about brain cancer in the Scottish Parliament. And as a GP, I might see up to two patients throughout my whole practising career 
to diagnose them with a brain tumour. And identifying these one or two patients early is really difficult. And that's because early symptoms, such as headaches or feeling sick, can be really vague. And they also have 10 or 20 different explanations. Sometimes patients present with convulsion, but the vast, vast majority of patients with headaches or epilepsy, and they don't have a brain tumour. One of the first things you're taught as a GP is common things are common. In other words, we shouldn't jump to brain tumour with a headache because it's more often than not a migraine or simply a headache. But this is of no comfort to those whose symptoms get worse, develop muscle weakness, have problems with balance, vision, hearing, or speech. They might lose their sense of smell, become confused, or suffer personality change. And <clears throat> some may go on to be diagnosed with brain cancer, but sadly, it is often very late. I spoke to Heather Deary from AIR, who went to her GP back in 2008, complaining of fainting, chronic headaches, and vision problems. Her GP diagnosed migraine, then stress. She was a student at the time, but her condition worsened, and she was at her wit's end. And 18 months and five different GPs later, she was referred to the ear, nose, and throat team. They found nothing wrong with the ear, but thought an MRI would be prudent, and that's when her tumour was found. Heather required emergency surgery to relieve pressure on her brain from the build-up of fluid. An 18-month wait from first presenting to her GP to diagnosis meant it was too late for any alternative treatment to surgery. And that surgery came with side effects. It left her with facial paralysis, partial deafness, balance and visual issues, nerve damage, fatigue, and muscle spasms. Heather suffers with pain constantly. And also, for the first three years after surgery, Heather had very little in the way of peer support. She just didn't know where to turn. Yet, she is amazing. Heather campaigns tirelessly as a patient advocate to raise awareness of brain cancer, and earlier this month received an award for her efforts from the Brain Tumor Charity. So what can we learn from Heather's experience and from the experiences of countless others? I can think of an action that would make a difference. In primary care, we really need a non-invasive test that flags up biomarkers for brain tumors. This would identify patients who may be at risk and require a referral for medical radiography. And if a patient's symptoms persist, GPs are more likely to do blood tests than we are to do an MRI or CT scan, given the pressure on radiological departments. And most of us in, in primary care can't actually order and request a CT or MRI brain scan. Brain tumours kill more patients under the age of 40 than any other cancer, and more children than leukaemia. And brain tumours kill more women under 35 than breast cancer, and kill more men under 70 than prostate cancer. We need to get real about research. I would request the Scottish Government to prioritise brain tumour and the other less survivable cancers as a clinical priority. We need a strategic plan for resourcing and funding discovery, translation, and clinical research. We also need a robust system of tissue collection, which is in place for cell line isolation and biobanking. The government should also ensure 
that access to clinical trials, which is key to developing new brain tumour therapies, is available. Epidermolysis bullosa, or EB, is the name for a group of rare inherited skin disorders that cause the skin to become very fragile. Any trauma or friction to the skin can cause painful blisters. EB is caused by a faulty gene and is usually diagnosed in babies and young children, as the symptoms can be obvious from birth. To understand more about caring for a child with EB and also to find out if there are new treatments on the horizon, I had a three-way call with Andy Grist, father of Isla, dermatologist Dr. Hussain, and Laura Forsyth from the national EB charity, Deborah. So we're talking about a skin condition, uh, and the skin condition that we're talking about is epidermolysis bullosa, uh, EB uh, for short. And it's a condition which is really about skin, which is what epiderm means, and lysis is breakdown. And bullosa is about blisters. So really, it's about the skin breaking down and blistering. Um, but I've got Dr. Hussein here, um, who uh, is specializes uh, in dermatology and skin. And I, I, I think my first question uh, to you, Dr. Hussein, is to ask you to just tell us a bit more about EB. Yeah, sure. No, thank you for that. So e EB is a, a spectrum of conditions. Uh, for one side, you've got really mild end, and the other end, you've got the really severe end. Uh, when I say mild, I say that quite loosely because it depends on what you're comparing against. Now, in, in its mildest form, uh, people living with EB may be, be able to ha may have problems walking. And the reason why they have problems walking is because is their, their gait changes as they walk because the blisters on, on their feet. Uh, so they have problems walking down the street. In the most severest, it can become really debilitating. Uh, people can end up in a wheelchair. Uh, they have not only blisters on the skin that you've mentioned, but also they have blisters internally within the mouth and in the wheelchair and in, in the eyes as well. And in, in a really severe case, you, you have patients where they have 6% of their skin missing. So what it means is they, they spend a lot of their time wrapping in bandages, which might take up to three hours, really. So they have a, a, a huge regime of taking drugs, predominantly painkillers. Now, the mental health side is a huge aspect uh, of the condition. Some people don't like to go out there because they are quite self-conscious about how they look. And also because EB is it's a fragility condition. They're quite conscious that of being touched or hit. So they might get more blisters, really. How do you get EB? Um, is it, is it, is it, it, it it's a genetic mm thing isn't it it's not it's not something that you can you can get or, or pick up yeah no this is it so eb is, is is a rare genetic skin condition so you, you're you're born with it uh and because of the genetic condition what it means is that you inherit one copy from your mum one copy from your dad both co copies of the gene don't work and together what it means you get eb as well uh it, it's it runs in the family so you tend to have a family history of it but equally the first time people know about it is when they have a baby that's got EB as well. So that might be the first time in the family somebody is born with EB. And when when do you pick up EB? Is there a way of finding out when you're pregnant, if you know? or uh, And also, at what stage in life does it get diagnosed? Yeah, yeah so because EB is, is 
is a spectrum of conditions from mild to the severe form. The severe form is you get diagnosis straight away. So as soon as a baby is born, you know there's a problem. And so diagnosis is very, very quick. The, the milder forms take longer to diagnose. So the, the, a baby is born, for example, EB simplex, which is a milder type of EB. They could be a normal, healthy baby. But then as soon as the baby's around, they become toddler age, six months, would start walking or crawling, and you get that skin friction, which causes the blisters. That's the first sign of EB. And then mum and dad will take them to the GP. And it depends how lucky you are whether the GP is aware of EB. And that's where there could be a delay in diagnosis. So depending on your severity, you can get very quick diagnosis or you can have a problem getting a diagnosis. As a, as a GP myself, mm -hmm. I'm yet to diagnose somebody uh, with EB. So in, in the average GP's working life, how many times are, are they expected to come across somebody with EB? Well, this is the interesting one. So, <clears throat> so there roughly is maybe 30,000 people you'll get one person with EB. That's how rare it is. So it's not that surprising that your average GP might not come across somebody with EB. Put it, in, put it in a different way for your viewers. If you had a bus and it's full of people, on that bus, you might see one person with psoriasis because psoriasis is a common condition. For EB, you'll have to wait for 400 buses before there's one person with EB. That's how rare it is. And, and this is why awareness is a big problem not not just the general public but also healthcare professionals like yourself as a gp the more people know about G about eb the quicker we get diagnosis and and hopefully the treatment and the support people with eb need yeah i mean and certainly you know diagnosing it, it, it is key um andy you're going to tell me about your experience um with isla uh, and what happened so how how did you get diagnosed and what, what's been happening? Um, so Isla was our third child, uh, is our third child. Um, and because of complications with the second child, which were nothing to do with EB, um, we were under very close scrutiny from uh, our local hospital down in Lancashire at the time. Um, they didn't pick anything up because it is, it is so rare and there's nothing to show on the scan um, uh, to indicate any problems. Now, Isla was an inadvertent arrival at home, which means she came a wee bit early and she was born on the bathroom floor. And um, she didn't have any skin on her hands and feet. And myself and the paramedic were at a bit of a loss to realise what was, what was wrong. But there was clearly something very wrong. Oh, Sorry, thought... Andy, can I, can I just clarify? You said she was born without skin on her hands and feet. Yeah. So what, what, did, what could you see? What, what, what were you actually looking at? Oh, I was looking at basically a, a newborn baby with, um, you know, a complete absence of skin on the hands and feet. They'd basically been, uh, I think the medical term is degloved de um, through the birthing process. And uh, the same process with the with with the feet, um, and she was in a lot of pain. But regarding the diagnosis part, um, that took a wee bit longer. Um, so before before we get on to the yeah. diagnosis, Andy, just mm -hmm. you know, when you saw, and, and degloving is absolutely the, the term we would use. But mm -hmm. when you saw that and she was in pain, what what happened then? Um. 
I, I was serving in the military at the time and there was no midwife present. So we were having a discussion about what the best thing to do was. And the decision was made to split um, my wife and uh, either up uh, while um, uh, my wife, Rachel, waited for the midwife uh, to get on the base and uh, come and do whatever midwives do after a birth. And uh, so myself and uh, the paramedic took Isla to the a hospital, but unfortunately it wasn't the hospital we'd been going to. They come from Blackpool Hospital rather than Preston Hospital, so we went to a, an unfamiliar hospital and um, uh, we got received, you know, very people very, very attentive and clearly something wasn't right, but no one knew what it was. Um, there's theories offered that because she was post-term, uh, it may, she may have just got a bit soft in the womb and some of the skin may have come off off during the delivery and uh, nothing to worry about within about 12 hours they were starting to um, home in on what the possible um, diagnosis could be so they were then preparing us for some um, bad news you know the baby was there was something potentially quite seriously wrong and the baby may die quite quickly um, which is a wee bit of a a change but as time passed um, a consultant came along um, who had had experience with EB um, in a previous role and he knew who to contact from Birmingham Children's Hospital and they came up and confirmed that they thought it was uh, EB. They weren't quite sure where on the spectrum it was um, but it was probably quite severe and they took a biopsy and that got sent off to London to guys in St. Thomas Hospital and uh, a diagnosis of recessive dystrophic EB came back uh, a couple of weeks later. So, and, and, and Andy, once you've, you've had that diagnosis mm -hmm. pretty quickly from, from, from the sounds of it, but, mm -hmm. but have you got to go home with Isla? You know, newborn baby, have you mm -hmm. got to go home? Have you had the opportunity to do those things or have you been in hospital the entire time? Um, we were in hospital for a few weeks um, while this uh, diagnosis process went on and it was a learning process for the hospital, the special care baby unit as well. Um, they were working out that some of their usual processes for fixing nasogastric tubes and various things with sticky plasters didn't work because it just peeled the skin off when they tried mm. to remove them. And where Isla was starting to scratch herself, she was blistering. And um, so we were all going on a, a, a learning, uh, going through a learning process. And you know, we weren't quite sure. We'd met um, someone from Birmingham Children's Hospital and we met members of staff from Deborah who started to answer many of the questions you, you have um, and tried to fill in a few of the blanks that are possible to fill in like with many rare and severe conditions it, you know there's not answers to everything um, I suppose it's understanding what you can get answers for and what you can't but we took either home um, and, you know, we carried her around on a padded pillow for months because um, we didn't want to hurt her. And, you know, she was knocking herself and damaging herself. So we were really finding our, our feet, trying to learn how to, to care for someone whose skin uh, is very fragile, as Dr. Hussain has said, on the inside as well as the outside. So she's getting lots of blisters in her mouth as she's trying to feed. Um, she's getting 
um, you know, problems with her, her eyes. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're learning how to care for her, both in terms of trying to, to prevent this damage being caused, but also to treat it when it, when it arrives. And how, how old is Isla now? She's 14. And how have you found that journey now through, through where you were? Obviously, I, I would have been very scared um, at the time mm -hmm. to where you are now. How has that journey been? Um, it has been a challenge, uh, most particularly a challenge for Isla. Um, you know, she has to deal with um, a physical and emotional challenge that's almost beyond comprehension to be in that amount of pain uh, continually uh, for that length of time and the effect that has on her, her mental well-being. So, you know, as more generally, she has an elder sister whose um, uh, relationship with her and the family dynamics has changed slightly because um, Isla's got a life-limiting and life-shortening condition that requires a, a fair bit of attention and, um, you know, disruption to, to, to the family. So um, she had a, a, you know, whilst we tried to keep everything fair and balanced, it undoubtedly had an impact on her. And then uh, also we're trying to face the a very uncertain future, watching your, your, your daughter in pain. Uh, continuously and um, we've had some very hard conversations you know, uh, along the way you know dad why are you keeping me alive this isn't worth it um, very uh, sort of I've managed that quality of life um, uh, with um, honest conversations that remain positive and provide hope at the same time where um, lots of research and really excellent work going on but at the moment um, you know, Isla knows the scale of what's happening to her and the the outcome for her at the moment, and that's difficult for for many many people, whether they're a child or whether they're an adult. So she's confronting a a shortness of life question um, whilst being in a lot of pain and uh, having a very compromised life. Um, you know, her bandages, as Doctor Hussain said, you know, take three hours to do. She has that done three times a week um, with a bath included. Every day she has more peripheral dressings changed. She's taking a mixture of fentanyl, methadone, methadone, ketamine. Um, so some very strong uh, painkillers that also have uh, effect on her body, her young body. She's only 29 kilograms. She's very fragile. She gets very anemic. Um, and you know, she's pump fed at night with, with milk to try and maintain the calories in her to, to fight the infections and the amount of repair that's going on on the inside and the outside of her body. Um, you know, as much of the skin on her hands, legs, feet, arms, back is now missing. And all her fingers are fused together, um, all her toes are fused together. She doesn't really have hands anymore. Um, and yeah, it compromises the inside of her mouth because um, all of the gums blister. And when they heal, um, uh, the, 
you get a lot of scar tissue and the skin starts tightening so she can't hardly open her mouth um the the structures of the inside of the mouth have changed so that uh, where saliva would normally drain down your throat for her that's all scarred away now so she, she, she actually dribbles through the front of her mouth which is i think was mentioned earlier can be socially awkward um and yeah but uh it's very humbling to be in Isla's presence because whilst she does have her own um, mental uh, challenges, um, she's such a kind and caring person, and she'll never um, she'll never kid on how bad things are for her. She'll never let on how bad things are for her. Um, she'll often try and reassure other people, and she will try and uh, take an interest in other people if they're not feeling well. Um, and the like. So, yeah, there's a lot to. It's quite humbling to be in Isla's presence and uh, other, uh, children with similar conditions um, because they are so stoic and so strong and almost um, uh, pragmatic and accepting of uh, a situation that they've had no part in, that they've played no part in um, uh, having this condition. So, no fault of their own that they're having a life that's compromised with a lot of pain and a, a lot of discomfort. Um, but uh, they accept it and then try and reassure those around them um, that uh, it's okay to be upset or it's okay to be however you're feeling about it towards her. Um, so that's it's quite amazing. Isla sounds like quite an amazing young girl and that's a very very hard story to hear Andy and I'm so grateful that you're willing to talk and share and I think it's important people understand uh, how a disease like this can can be for people and um, can I ask how did you find out about Deborah? Um, Deborah reached out to us um, through the special care baby unit in Blackpool Hospital so um, they were, assumed, I assume, contacted by the paediatric consultant who had some knowledge of Deborah, and so they reached out to us. And yeah, I can remember meeting very, very clearly for the for the first time. And I met a lady called Jane, who I ended up working alongside um, through some work I've done with, with Deborah, and just reflecting on the kindness and the empathy that she showed. Uh, right from that very beginning moments where we're trying to understand what EB is uh, about, what the likely journey might be. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll be forever grateful for that because uh, it was a difficult time and you know, it was handled with great skill by people who didn't have all the answers and you know couldn't provide the reassurance that any uh, new parent wants when uh, things aren't going going well, but they dealt dealt with it extremely sensitively and uh, practically and pragmatically, and uh, yeah, that could only help in what was a a very very difficult time for us as a family. So very grateful. Thank you. And and and, and Laura, your um, Hello. what is Deborah? I mean, we've heard from Andy um, about how great you are. But what is Deborah, and and why is it why is it set up? 
Deborah is a national charity um, and patient support group for people living with the rare and extremely painful condition EB. Um, we are in place to really support them from the very beginning and until, well, throughout, throughout their whole lives. Um, as Sagir mentioned, there's um, different levels of the condition. So each individual needs a different level of support from us. Um, in terms of how we can help them, I mean, we can help with everyday living, including things like their benefits, employment, housing, schools, emotional support. We can refer them to specialist healthcare um, and work closely with people like EB nurses and things like that, that can really kind of support them day to day. Um, we also are fundraising money towards future cures. So that's like treatments that can improve their everyday quality of life. Um, and also looking at our new like um, appeal that we've currently got on at the moment, our Life Free of Pain appeal. Um, we're trying to raise a lot of money towards drug repurposing that can hopefully really impact um, people suffering from EB's lives um, quite a lot. Um, so we do try to help them in every way that we can. Obviously, it is a very harsh condition, um, not easy for the people living with it or their family members around them. So just really provide support in any way we possibly can. And Dr. Hussain, what's what is the the repurposing of drugs? What what type of things are we are we looking at doing here? Yeah, sure. So uh, at the moment, there are no licensed drugs for EB. Now, to, to get a new drug onto the market, it can take up to 10, 15 years and, and 800 million pounds. Now, for every 100 drugs in the pipeline, maybe two, three will make it to the end and get licensed in the NHS. Today, right now, uh, in the NHS, there are already drugs being used to, to treat psoriasis patients and eczema patients. And we know there's a good safety profile, you know, because it's being used today. Now, we, we've talked to the top dermatologists and the EB specialists, and they believe if we can repurpose some of these drugs that are treated for psoriasis and eczema, it could improve the quality of life of the EB community. And that's what we want to do. We want to repurpose those drugs. So we're saving 10, 15 years of uh, drug development and 800 million pounds. And that's really important for a rare condition because we don't have the awareness or the amount of money needed to develop a new drug. And, and that's what drug repurposing is. Okay, and, and, and Laura, if people have heard and um, they are keen to get involved or, or donate money, how would people go about doing that? Yeah, so I mean, there's lots of ways people can get involved. Um, obviously, we, well, donating money towards um, the charity can help towards pay for things like bandages or specialists or anything that somebody with EB needs, really. Um, we also have members weekends and things like that that money goes towards which families get together and we put on a weekend for them to have a wee bit of a break and get together and have some fun we've got holiday homes and things like that that all that all that money goes towards to kind of really improve the quality of life for, for, for everybody brilliant and Andy my last question is is for you how how have you felt um the impact in the family and how are you coping um with everything yeah it it does have an impact and i don't think we should be 
um, reticent or embarrassed to say that um, foremostly it, it has the physical and psychological impact on Isla who has EB and that is horrendous I wouldn't wish that on on anyone and I often wrestle with the question you know, you know could I if I could take it for her would I you know but it, it's it's an absolutely brutal of course I would and I'd try but watching what she goes through it's it's truly truly horrific um which brings her to question why she's she's being kept alive and you know that's a completely different discussion you know she has brighter moments as well but that gives you a, a level of the uh, the severity of the condition you know it's um it's very 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 challenging and what, I suppose... what a thing to hear as well from your daughter saying why am i here yeah why are you keeping me alive yeah and we've got very very capable people around us who are trying to advise us how to manage those conversations um which are by their own admission difficult for them let alone difficult for people who are family and involved in the situation um and perhaps aren't as well trained or versed in psychological or psychiatric um discussions so um yeah but it's also um very very powerful in the way that it i wouldn't wish this on anyone but it does make you cut through what's important and what's not so important um you know you you can it does change your perspective and i suppose the the difficulty with that is or one of the difficulties could be um you know as your perspective changes um you, you you yourself are going on a journey and uh um looking at uh at life and your own life slightly slightly differently through a slightly different lens and um, yeah you have to be able to recognize when that is having a negative impact on you um, and seek help whether that be through GPs or whether that be through the lovely staff at Deborah or just friends and just uh, reach out and uh, let them know that um, you, know, you just talk things through and uh, get some perspective back yourself um, and that's you know we're doing challenges and raising awareness for me is so powerful you know cause it allows me to have a, uh, a channel to uh, raise awareness for the charity and also at my level raise some, a limited amount of money um, but it's and it's very humbling meeting people. I think Graham Suness's name has been mentioned. I just like I've got to know Graham reasonably well over the last year or so because he has such a soft spot for Isla and he's very, very generous with his time. Now, Isla knows nothing about football, um, even less about football management. She doesn't watch Sky Sports, funnily enough, being a 15 year old, 15 year old girl, 14 year old girl. She's, um, but she has a very, very soft spot for Graham. Because he will ring her up on Christmas Day to wish her a happy Christmas. You know, when he was up here doing some uh, work for Deborah, uh, it was quite a difficult day. He rang up the next day to check she was okay. And yeah, he is, he's very, very personally engaged with it. And, uh, you know, that's uh, it's, it's quite humbling to see from someone who is so successful and so masculine and so um uh you know a hero to many people in scotland whichever side of the 
range of Celtic divide you on, you know, people are Scotland fans, um, you know, and yeah, it's very, very humbling to, to, to see the effort and as well as him and the other vice presidents, Lord Northern England, Frank Warren and um, Simon Proctor um, and our president, Simon Weston, they dedicate so much time and so much energy and so much effort um, and you know none of those are directly affected by ED. So, yeah, it, it being part of that team, uh, trying to raise awareness and trying to raise some funds to improve quality of life, and ultimately further down the track find a cure if that's possible. But certainly in the shorter term, improve these uh, the patients with EB, the suffering they go through, just slightly improve it, and. Uh, make their life uh, more bearable. It, it, it's, it's humbling and a privilege to be part. Andy Grist and the heart-wrenching story of his daughter Isla, who suffers with the rare skin condition, EB. And that's all from this week's Gulhani on Politics. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to subscribe. For now, from me, until next time. Bye-bye.